came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta and Gaibal country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Sunday the 15th of August. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can... To protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Today we have an awesome interview for you with a fantastic Fulbright Scholar PhD candidate and successful exoplanet hunter. It's a comprehensive look at the very latest in exoplanetary science, and to keep our episodes under the hour, we'll be publishing part two of this amazing interview a little later. You're going to love this part one. Hello there, Jake. G'day, Brendan. How are you, mate? Very well, thanks, Jake. Good on you. Now, today I'm very pleased to be speaking with Jake Clark, Fulbright Future Scholar and PhD candidate in planetary astrophysics, who has dedicated his career to answering the question, are we alone? He is also a great proponent of outreach and science communication and is based at the University of Southern Queensland in sunny Toowoomba in Australia. Thanks for speaking with us, Jake. No worries at all, Brandon. And just thank you so much for having me a part of your amazing podcast. Been a fan for uh, many years. It's just great to great to actually be on this time. Excellent. Fantastic. Okay. Well, just before we talk about your exoplanet hunting exploits, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Jake, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Brennan. So I grew up in the northern suburbs of Adelaide in a place called Salisbury. And to sort of paint you a, a pretty picture of Salisbury and unemployment's around about 10, 12% there. Most people are blue-collar workers in Salisbury and gets a pretty bad rap in terms of the northern suburbs of Adelaide and in terms of Salisbury and Elizabeth in terms of, you know, sort of unsavory, I guess you can say, bogans. So I grew up surrounded by people who never even finished high school. 
let alone go off to do university or to be in my position of almost finishing their their PhD. But I've always had a fascination with with space, and I can't really remember about exactly when when that sort of passion took place. But I guess it's more for me been more of a trajectory of well. I mean, I can remember as a kid when I was about six, seven years old, my hero back then was Dr. Andy Thomas. And uh, Dr. Andy Thomas is from Adelaide, my neck of the woods. And so that was sort of the connection there for me that sort of hooked me into it. And I would, as I mentioned, bit of a bit of an interesting area where I grew up and I'd wake my father at all hours of the morning. You can imagine my dad startling. I mean, the poor, the poor uh, beggar, he uh, had, uh, does shift work. So you can imagine the guy trying to get some shut eye and then all of a sudden he has two little beady eyes staring at him. <laughs> so I would startle him <laughs> and uh, would say, oh, well, I want to go outside and wave to Andy. And yep. so we'd wake up and I would imagine my dad at the time would just point at some random star. <laughs> it wouldn't really matter at that point and just say, all right, well, there he is. Go, go wave. And we'd be up for about 30 seconds to a minute and, wave and then go back inside and go to sleep (laughs) (laughs) fantastic yeah and then i remember back in year seven we had a sort of a free form project we could do anything we wanted to and so i did mine on planets and when i was a kid i had this weird huge aspirations of being an astronaut and when i was in high school i wanted to join the army and uh, actually go into the air force at one point and become a pilot but found out that being a six foot four human Huh. Um, unfortunately, a little bit too tall to be a be a pilot. So, I remember actually in my first, so in the last day of choosing courses for uni, I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I actually going to do for the rest of my life? And so I said to myself, well, back when I was a kid, I really enjoyed space and planets and stuff, and I really enjoy physics at the moment. So I'm just going to put in in the search engine space physics, and it turned out that there was a bachelor of space science and astrophysics at the Adelaide University, and I guess the rest is history. Fantastic. And as an aside, you being too tall probably explains why they cast Tom Cruise in Top Gun, but that's another story. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Okay. Tell us a little bit more about those early ambitions and how they might have changed. Yeah, definitely. I think they sort of waxed and, and waned as I was growing up. I remember definitely back in primary school being like, all right, I, I want to be an astronaut. And I think even in year 10, I was going back to that point and we had this program at school called Youth Opportunities where it was really aimed at low socioeconomic schools and they'd come in and try and help kids to aspire what they wanted to do. And I remember the sort of blank look on the programmer's face when I said to him that I wanted to become an astronaut. He's like, how the hell, like, how does, how does one even become one? But I remember when I was in high school, I joined up the army cadets and I really wanted to get into the army and go into the Australian Defence Force Academy over in Canberra. And I was in the, in the army cadets for about six years. And it sort of got to the point, Brendan, where I thought I'm a very innately curious human and I've always sort of questioned why. I remember my mom, when I was like four or five, just getting sick of me, always asking why, because I just wanted to know more. <laughs> and I guess that uh, still hasn't been beaten out of me. And so I thought that sort of is that juxtaposition of how regimented and 
structured the the defense forces in terms of you can't really question things above you. It's just, all right, you've got to go on and do the job at hand. So I guess it was sort of, it was perpendicular to, to where I was going and where I wanted to head with my, with my life. And not to say that I would, I would, you know, if I had my time again, that I'd go back that I'd go into the defense force. I think it'd be an excellent career, but I guess where I'm at now, I'm, I'm really, really, I'm really happy and content of where I am. And so apart from those two points, I remember at one point I really wanted to be a musician, but my drum teacher said to me straight out, he said, you're, you got more brains to sit around and play drums all day. So you might as well use your intellect while you still have it. So I'm all right, well, let's do it. But I've always been interested in sports and whatnot and sort of had as a kid aspirations of becoming a footballer or a, or a cricketer, but you know, those, those types of aspirations sort of fade as you get a little bit older and I mean I guess with everyone right you know we have top tier cricketers and look at the Olympians now I guess you know those dreams are their dreams for some and maybe not for others like myself but we all have our own different different path yeah well change is important and you may not have got to Duntroon but you did end up in Canberra ran away to the circus we'll hear about that a little bit so after your successful school career in Adelaide, you got your BSCs, your Bachelor of Science at the University of Adelaide, first in space science and astrophysics, then a BSc honours year where you notched up first class honours in physics. Then you moved up to Canberra and the ANU where you nailed a Master of Science Communication and worked at the Questacon Science Circus. Fantastic. And now... You're finalising your PhD in exoplanetary detection and characterisation at the University of Southern Queensland up in Toowoomba. So, Jake, can you tell us how you were inspired to enrol in your exoplanet hunting PhD at USQ and what the awarding of your Fulbright Future Scholarship in 2020 meant for you? Yeah, they're two amazing questions, Brendan. So I'll answer the first one and then get to the Fulbright. But in terms of exoplanets, I've always been really fascinated with exoplanets starting from my first year in undergrad, studying my Bachelor of Space Science and Astrophysics at the University of Adelaide. And I remember first day coming in, the head of the School of Sciences at that point was like, wait, it was a huge hall, sort of sandstone building in the middle of Adelaide. And there was about oh, a couple of thousand people in there. And someone asked about the I, or where, when do we get our iPads? I'm thinking, oh, what do you mean? And uh, she said, oh, well, yeah, if, for people that don't know, if you've enrolled in science that this year, everyone gets a free iPad. I'm thinking, you beauty, like coming from, a, <laughs> coming from the background that I came from, Brendan. I mean, that was, a, that was awesome. So I'm thinking, oh, geez, well, what am I going to do with it? I didn't, have it? I didn't even have internet at home at that time. I mean, that was, what, 2011? And so I remember the first class of astronomy that we sit down and our lecturer, Andrew McKinnon, sits us down and he's like, oh, well, you know, here's some cool apps to, to download. One is Exoplanets. Uh, it's uh, run by the, the people that run exoplanets.eu, the website and sort of archive catalog. And so I downloaded it. And at the time, I reckon there was between 300 and 400 exoplanets being discovered so far. And every time I'd get into uni, I'd turn on the Wi-Fi and maybe once a week you get a little notification be like, hey, there's been a new exoplanet that's been discovered. 
and it would tell you about the size of it, the mass and who discovered it and the sort of method. And it would show, show a comparison of like different, how this planet that's being discovered uh, around a star light years away sort of compares to planets within our own solar system. I'm thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. Like the dream would be to have your name associated with one planet. I think that would be fantastic. And so I remember in first year doing our free project on exoplanet atmospheres because that's what I was really interested in at the time. And I remember at the Adelaide Uni bookstore picking up a book by Sarah Sager, who's one of my heroes in, in the field there. And I remember during my honours, I was studying more atmospheric physics and I got offered this really cool PhD project to go down to Antarctica and observe some really interesting clouds that form over the Antarctic and Arctic. I'm thinking, oh, wow, this would be fantastic. And I guess my sort of love for exoplanets was sort of waning just a little bit because I had this really great opportunity. And then unfortunately, the sort of funding for that fell through. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, well, what am I going to do? And so in 2015, I sent an email to a group over at UNSW, uh, Center of Astrobiology. And there was a couple of people there studying exoplanets. And I got in contact with a researcher called Rob Wittenmeyer. Um, and he's like, yep, yeah, cool. Come on over to Sydney and we can have a chat. And so go over there and have a chat to him. And God, this is exactly what I want to get into. So he said, well, all right, we'll apply for your PhD mid-semester and we'll see how we go. And I remember back in Adelaide, I was in sort of parallel. I was trying to work out, okay, well, can I get another project here? Because I had a PhD scholarship at Adelaide, but no project. And I was waiting for the results in over at UNSW for a project in, um, sorry, for the PhD scholarship and project over at UNSW. And it's just so happened that I had to give up the Adelaide scholarship two weeks prior to knowing about if I was going to get into UNSW. And so I put all my eggs into the UNSW basket and it turned out that I wasn't good enough to, to get in. So I remember that day very fondly, Brendan, of just being in my bed, just bawling my eyes out and thinking, what on earth am I going to do? And I guess you know, during this whole time, I was working in pubs and uh, restaurants just trying to make ends meet during that sort of gap year that I had between, you know, what I'm actually going to do or the rest of my life. I'm thinking, what, what am I going to do? And then all of a sudden I saw an ad on Facebook said, run away and join the circus, the science <laughs> circus. And I'm thinking, Oh, well, that sounds like fun. You know, uh, during my undergrad, I was uh, running my own radio show, which I still do now. And I thought, well, you know, talking about science, that's really what I lo love doing. And so what an application in didn't think any about it because I thought, well, Bloke from Salisbury is not going to get in and get a phone call being like, Hey, we want to bring you over to Canberra for an interview. And I think, Oh my God, this is amazing. So I'll go over and go to Questacon, the National Science and Technology Center. And I was like a kid in a candy store, Brendan. I mean, it was just going to the Willy Wonka factory of science. <laughs> I was 24 years old at that time and thinking, Oh my God, where has this place been my entire life? And this is where I need to be. And so I said to Rob, because Rob sent me an email when I got the email to say that I couldn't get into UNSW. I said, that's all right, mate, just apply for next year. So I sent him a message, being like, hey, look, mate, I'm actually going to go and do this master's for a year. And he said, yep, no worries. I'm going through a really rough time here at the moment. So probably next year is probably best. And so I worked on him on an exoplanet discovery paper in parallel with doing my master's. And then by the end of my master's, I sent him an email, being like, hey, look, you know, I'm really looking forward to going down to Sydney with you and doing my PhD he said oh yeah about that I'm actually moving to Toowoomba 
I'm like, where on earth is Toowoomba? And it's, you know, it's just a little small regional town in, in well, it's actually the largest inland city in, a, in Australia, apart from Canberra. And I said, all right, well, I'll go along for the journey. And so I applied for USQ and four years later, I'm still here yet. I'm still here, mate. So it's just been an absolute journey. And in terms of the Fulbright, I mean, the Fulbright, a Fulbright scholarship is, in terms of prestige, it's right up there with, let's say, the, the Rhodes Scholar, the Rhodes Scholarship. And never in my wildest dreams, Brendan, would have I thought I could get to one stage of the interview process, let alone being awarded it and going over to America in September and working with one of the most amazing researchers I've ever met. And not only amazing researcher, but an amazing person, Dr. Natalie Hinkle, on this really cool machine learning stuff that we'll talk about a little bit later on. I'm so, so grateful to be in the position where I can wake up every morning and go, this is a reality for me. Like, this is my dream. And it's just every day I sort of have to pinch myself and think that this is, this is it. This is really happening. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm really, really grateful for the Fulbright scholarship and it means the absolute world and hopefully will open up some more doors in terms of moving further in my career and getting a job after my PhD. And I'm just really excited about the prospects of, moving forward and seeing what other opportunities await for me when I'm over in Texas in September. Fantastic. What a great way to launch a career. Now, we are going to get all sciencey in a minute, and we're going to talk about TESS and Kepler and K2, the Galar survey and Minerva Australis. But first, could you tell us a bit more about that kid in the science candy store? Can you tell us a little bit about your time in the science circus? It sounds wonderful. It was honestly one of the best years of my life, Brandon. It was absolutely incredible. So it was a well went like it was a master's and typically a master's goes for about 18 months and they cram it into 11 months. And you're with the same 15 people for seven days a week. So you really have to gel with those 15 other people. Otherwise, it's, it will be a very long year. And our field work, we travel around to different parts of Australia presenting science shows to high schoolers and primary school kids and go around doing sort of huge public exhibitions to regional Australians. And I think moving to Toowoomba and being now part of the regional community, just having those opportunities and being able to present those likes of those opportunities to regional Australians is so incredibly important in terms of STEM empowerment for unrepresented uh, communities. And it was sort of where my love for science communication started. And that's you know, where I got my master's in science communication, but just being out there in front of kids, showing them the sort of magic and wonder of, of science and being able to engage with them and, having kids ask some really cool, interesting questions. I mean, there's some questions there that I wasn't, be able, I wasn't able to ask. And people within the circus have gone on to do some really cool and interesting things the year that I was in. I was with, I, uh, back then, he was a bloke in the Navy as a meteorologist. And now Nate Byrne, he's the weather presenter now for ABC Breakfast. Sort of combining your love of science with science communication, science media can open up so many doors and, it's really helped me with during my PhD and the opportunities that I've been able to have. And I was very, very fortunate to be awarded a $10,000 grant during my PhD to travel around to low socioeconomic schools around the Darling Downs up here in Queensland and present 
hands-on science shows to kids and dancing through the solar system and building exoplanets out of Play-Doh and all of that has stemmed from being a part of the circus. And I think the fondest memories for me was being in remote indigenous communities in the Northern Territory where, you know, these opportunities are far and few in between and just the love of science that they had and building up a, a connection with them. And it was, yeah, the best time of my life. I mean, not to say that I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now, but I guess it was just a very different experience and I'll treasure that year for the rest of my life. Yeah, fantastic. Heaps of fun and a great way to inspire future scientists. You've mentioned questions twice now and at some stage, maybe in a future episode, we might talk about the philosophy and science and how the questions are actually probably more important than the answers. But that's another thing altogether. Back to your PhD. I see now you're well into it. You're probably finishing it off now and you already have a lot of publications. Are you doing your PhD by publication or by thesis? And are you on track? How's it going? How's the timeline? Probably a question you never ask a PhD student, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, oh, Brendan, it's been such an adventure. I had a really great plan for my PhD. And I guess it's just like how people view success. And I guess it's the same way as people view a PhD, that's always going to be a very straightforward path and things are going to go well. But as all, as with all things, Brendan, it's just been a very adventurous journey. And I remember in my first year, so, so you sort of have milestones through your PhD and within the first year, well, here in USQ, some universities are a little bit different, but typically within the first year, you do a presentation in front of experts to talk about what you want to do as a part of your PhD, what the, what the plan is, how you're going to go about it. And it's more or less just to see whether or not you're on the right track with thinking of something novel and you've got the expertise and the know-how around you to help build, build yourself and the skill set up so that you can achieve what you want. I remember getting out of that presentation and feeling pretty good about what I was going to do. And then two weeks later, there was a nature paper that was released about exactly what I was going to do for my PhD. So I was thinking, oh, well, all right, back to the drawing board. What else am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's just been sort of ups and downs and with COVID and fortunately went through a pretty bad personal experience last year and sort of picking up the pieces with that and you know, mental health and, and all the rest of it. I'm actually a little bit behind, but I'm on the right track now. I'm doing my thesis via publication. If you want to do your thesis by publication, you have to at least have two papers accepted, another one submitted. And so I have one that's been accepted, one that's going through the peer review process now, and about another one that's going to be submitted within another month. So actually hoping to submit my thesis around October time. And so, yeah, it's sort of, I wouldn't say it's been on track, but it's on track now. The The train sort of fell off the rails there for a bit, but I've been picking it up wagon by wagon. And now it's sort of full steam ahead to the finish line. But I've really enjoyed the journey. And as all things, some things don't go your way, but that's sort of hands you're dealt with and you just got to deal with it accordingly. And in those moments of adversity, I guess that also shows you what type of a human being you are as well, as well as being a scientist. Yeah, very true, Jake. Okay, well, we know that many PhDs often have great mentors and supervisors. Would you like to tell us about 
some of those people who've supported your career, mentioned some already, and your current research directions? Yeah, that's, that's a really awesome question, Brendan. I have a lot of research heroes. And one of my biggest heroes is, as I mentioned before, Dr. Natalie Hinkle. She's the researcher I'm going to spend the most time with at the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio for my Fulbright. And she created a whole catalog for her PhD about six years ago now, where she was able to determine the chemical abundances or go through and just basically go through the entire archives. This has never been done before and try and collate all of the data for a massive database, which is a huge challenge within itself. And uh, that database is called the Hypatia catalog. And so you can work out sort of the building blocks of stars and you can relate that to the building blocks of planets and you can do some really cool stuff with it. And so she's been able to use machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence to sort of forward predict what types of stars will host hot Jupiters, which are planets that are sort of larger than Jupiter and orbit pretty close to their stars. I mean, they sort of have years that last days, if not hours. I mean, for me, Brendan, it's not just the people, uh, sorry, it's, it's, it's the scientists, but it's also the person behind the scientists. I think those people are my biggest heroes in terms of not only are they great scientists, but also are they great people. So I mean, including in that list, we have Joanna Teske, who is a fantastic researcher based over in America, George Zhao, who's a part of uh, USQ, and Duncan Wright, who's also one of my supervisors that will always give you the time, time of the world to sort of assist you in what you're working in. And it's not just, you know, it's not spoon feeding you, it's just guiding you and sort of mentoring you to, to become a better scientist. And they're always the sort of people that sort of lift you up and, and inspire you to, to move forward. And Rob, Rob Wittenmeyer, my principal supervisor, me and him, we have such, such an awesome relationship where we, between Rob, Jonty and I, we, you know, play board games every fortnight to just hang out. And it's, it's a real sort of community where we are at USQ. So they're sort of my biggest, my biggest heroes, but I guess I have a lot of heroes outside of academia and outside of research who sort of have inspired me to, push on with with my goals and there's a few musicians uh jesse leach it's a name someone out of the blue and i guess there's also you know family members and i guess my biggest inspiration is my grandfather i mean he was a man that didn't go to uni or anything like that but his sense of humility and compassion and kindness has framed me to become the person that i am and i'm really fortunate for that so I think, you know, in terms of role models and looking up to and people to aspire to, you sort of have to separate at a point there, the scientist and, and the human being. And sometimes that can be, that can be hard, especially when you're sort of new in the field like me and you have to work out who's who and conferences and being able to go to conferences physically. And unfortunately in the COVID world that we live in, everything's a little bit virtual, but being able to physically interact with people, you sort of know what they're like. And you sort of know who to hang around with. And I guess more importantly, Brendan, who, who not to. Yep. Yeah. And that's a lovely description where you look for the person behind the scientist. That's just beautiful. Now, one final background recap before we dive into your research, please, Jake. In a recent episode, we heard from Richard Stevenson up at Tidbin Billa, how he sent the final good night commands to the Spitzer Space Telescope in 2020. Now, 
as you know, Spitzer was famous for locating the Trappist exoplanets and another great NASA telescope was Kepler. Could you tell us about the amazing Kepler and K2 missions and whether exoplanet hunters like you were saddened when NASA sent the goodnight signal to the Kepler Space Telescope back in 2018? I think everyone in the astro community and especially those who are in the planet hunting game were deeply saddened by Kepler. And hopefully one day, I mean, currently it's sort of just spinning out of control behind Earth. Maybe one day we can capture the telescope and be able to bring it back down to Earth safely and preserve it in a in a museum somewhere that everyone can have access to or or something like that because the legacy of the Kepler spacecraft is is immense. It was the first spacecraft ever conceived and launched into space that was solely dedicated to finding planets around stars in the night sky and its whole mission was to stare at one patch of the night sky for about three to four years. It was using a few reactor wheels to sort of stabilize itself and to look at that one patch of the sky and unfortunately with one of those wheels malfunctioning what happened was it was sort of spinning out of control a little bit and it wasn't directly pointed at that patch because it wanted to we wanted to find planets with earth-like orbits so orbiting around their stars you know every 300 odd days or so and unfortunately it couldn't stabilize on that specific patch but us scientists are pretty cluey at at times and we can be uh, pretty innovative and so we were able to use the pressure from the photons from the sun to stabilize the spacecraft and which was great but unfortunately it was looking at different patches of the sky and that was the lead up to the k2 mission Still using the same spacecraft, but instead of looking at that one patch, it was looking looking at stars within what's known as the ecliptic. And I guess you can sort of think of the ecliptic as more of the, the zodiac of, or, you know, if you think about that, where the constellations are, where the sun passes through, the yeah. zodiac constellations fall within the ecliptic. And so it had sort of 13 patches it was, it was looking at. And that was the K2 mission. I've been very fortunate to use data from the K2 mission for my for my PhD and the Kepler spacecraft has been, well, at the moment, or hopefully tests, I can talk a little bit, I'll talk about tests in a sec, but Kepler at the moment is the most successful planet hunting telescope to date. At the moment, I think it's about 60% of all planets that have been discovered outside of our own solar system were discovered using that spacecraft and using that telescope and so yeah, to, to hear that the telescope malfunctioned and it happened during my PhD, it's a huge loss. It's an, and it's an immensely huge loss. And I guess it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like when a, when, a pet, when a pet has died and you get a new puppy sort of six months later, the sort of old pet sort of di- disappears from memory and you sort of get going awe of the, of the, of the new puppy. And I guess if, sort of that analogy had tests sort of launching within the first six or sorry, within that sort of six to 12 month period of, of Kepler, unfortunately uh, saying good night, but yeah, it's just, it's a huge, huge loss. And I hope one day that we can actually preserve the spacecraft and we'll continue to preserve the memory of, of it from many, for many more years to come. Brendan. 
Yeah, very true. And well, it is preserved in a sense. It's hanging in there. It's out there. It's hopefully not going to get bashed by too much space junk. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's time. Let's take a dive into your exoplanet hunting research now, Jake. Our listeners will be aware of the basics of tests that you've mentioned and Minerva Australis Telescope, because in previous episodes, we've talked with Dr. Jesse Christensen and your colleague, Professor Jonty Horner, but let's do some science now and look at your PhD work itself. Can you paint the big picture for us of your research and what are the big questions you're looking at? Yeah, that's an, that's an awesome, awesome question, Brendan. So we know that at the moment, current statistics show us that every single star in the sky, you go outside right now, you stare up and every star could have a rocky world orbiting around it. That's what the statistics show us. Yep. And my research is aiming to try and answer the question of what's the general population of these rocky worlds and what are these rocky worlds actually made from? Are they made up the sort of the similar rocky material that we find planets in our own solar system? Or could they be made out of some other sort of geological rock formations that we're unaware of here within within the solar system so i've been using the galar survey which is a, as you could probably guess an australian survey looking at uh, so it's mainly aimed at galactic archaeology so galactic archaeology involves fewer shovels than i guess uh just big big telescopes that being the anglo-australian telescope and it's at the moment surveyed almost 800 thousand stars yep. in the southern sky which is absolutely incredible and what it can tell you is it can tell you the physical and chemical characteristics of those 800,000 odd stars and so I can use that data along with and sort of cross that with the stars that are being observed by the test mission the transiting exoplanet survey satellite mission which is now a brand or I guess not brand new it's been up in up in space now for the last three years, orbiting Earth and scouring basically the entire night sky for, for planets. And so I can sort of look at the stars that are being observed by Galar, the stars that are being observed by Tess and sort of sort of look at that Venn diagram. And then I can look at the chemical properties of those stars and use some dark magic to sort of, okay, oh, well, if that's what the stars made up of, we can therefore look at, well, the stars and the planets would be made up of the sort of similar material made from the same cloud of dust and gas and rocks. And from that, you can sort of paint a little picture as to, okay, well, look at this particular star. If we find rocky planets orbit around the star, will they be sort of similar geology to planets that are found within our own solar system or will they be something different? And I guess it sort of paints a bigger picture of if we do find stars that have sort of exotic alien geological chemistry, then we need to study that further here on Earth and try and work out, well, if these planets are sort of made of carbonite and you look at sort of a, a world with a core of pure diamond something crazy like that what would be the sort of habitability for these types of worlds would it be similar to habitability that we find here on sort of worlds that resemble the likes of mars and venus and earth or would the habitability be completely different so 
that's what I've been trying to do as a part of my PhD, as well as we already have that information. We can better, well, I wouldn't say better, but give a, a better idea of the size and the mass of these planets, which can then lead on to the density of these worlds, which can then lead on to the composition. And as I've just mentioned, we can then really determine what the innards of these planets are made out of. So that's what I've been doing as a big part of my PhD. Fantastic. And I can see why you've developed that strong interest in the Hypatia catalogue. Yes. Yeah. And that I think my interactions with Natalie to start off with was I found that catalogue and thought, oh my God, this is absolutely incredible and started following her on, on Twitter, I believe. And <laughs> then she put up on Twitter saying, I'd love some testers to test out the new website. And so I volunteered and started chatting to her and sort of one thing comes after the next. And now she's one of my PhD supervisors. So yeah, the Hypatia catalogue and it's freely available. So if anyone wants to have a dig around, just go to www.hypatiacatalog.com and all the data's there. And what's great is that you can sort of have a play with it right then and there with an interactive interface. So if you want to have a play right now, you sure can. Sensational, Jake. Thank you very much. That's great. Now, the Hypatia catalogue will certainly be good for those experienced astronomers. Now, in each episode, we like to put something in for new listeners. Can you just briefly give us a skinny on TESS's two exoplanet hunting capabilities, the transit method and the radial velocity method. Could you outline these two methods for our new listeners, please? Yeah, for sure. So TESS, as I've mentioned, it's scouring the entire sky for planets. And what it does is it has four cameras and it takes pictures or strips of the sky and it looks, it stares at one part of the sky every 28 days and sort of just shifts just a little bit. And it takes about half a year or a little bit over half a year to look at one hemisphere. And then it sort of flips up and observes the other hemisphere with those sort of 13 slices. And what it's actually doing is just taking a picture of some of these stars every 30 seconds. And in some cases, every two minutes. Yep. And what it's looking for is if you think about sort of a, a, a lamp in front of you right now, and you think of like a little ping pong ball, sort of remember, I guess, well, it might, 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 might have been a toy for you, uh, Brendan, uh, sort of the ball on a string and you got the bat and you sort of just bat, bat it around and this, the sort of ball goes around, around the, around the stick in the backyard. Yep. yep. So if you sort of imagine that, but on your sort of lampshade, the brightness dips ever so slightly because as the sort of ball passes across the face of the lamp, it's blocking a bit of that light. And so we're basically, what Tess is doing is doing the exact same. It's looking for that those dips in the starlight. And so if you see this dip, say every 15 days, well, that sort of gives you an indication that there might be a planet orbiting this star every 15 days. Yep. And so that's known as the transit photometry method or the transit method. And so every 15 days, tests will then upload all of the data down back down to Earth. And down on Earth, that's when we can use another method. We can also use the transit method on the ground, but what we can use on the Earth is known as the radial velocity method. So if you close your eyes, listeners listening in, 
close your eyes and imagine that you're on a giant seesaw and in front of you is this gigantic African elephant. <laughs> now make sure you strap yourself in, otherwise you're going to fly off the seesaw. But Brendan, if you're on a seesaw with a giant F elephant, where are you going to be? On the ground or with your legs kicking up in the air? <laughs> I'm not going to be in the middle. No. <laughs> No, you're definitely not. You're going to be up in the air with your legs kicking about. Yeah. And that's because, obviously, the elephant weighs more than you do. Yep. However, you have the fulcrum in which the seesaw is balancing on. If you move that fulcrum towards the elephant, there'll be a point there where you balance out completely. Yep. Where you position that fulcrum would be more or less underneath the elephant because the elephant's just a lot larger <laughs> than you. But... When that seesaw balances out completely, that point of where the fulcrum is, is known as the center of mass of the system between you and the elephant. Yep. So if you swap you for a planet and the elephant as a star, then the star and the planet actually orbit around that center of mass point. And so just as that planet orbits around that point, so does the star. And so if you see that star wobble backwards and forwards, around this center of mass point. And we can see that wobble as the change of starlight. And that's known as the Doppler effect. So it's just as if there's an ambulance sort of rushing past you and the, the ambulance gets louder and louder and all of a sudden it gets very, very quiet. And that's because the speed of sound is comparable to the speed of the ambulance. And so those sound waves are sort of compressing up together. So that, uh, from that, the ambulance siren gets louder and louder and louder. And as the ambulance is moving to away from you, then that's when it gets quieter and quieter because those sort of uh, sound waves are sort of stretching out. And similarly with light, as that star is wobbling towards you, the starlight gets a little bit bluer. As it moves away from you, it gets a little bit redder. And we can use fancy spectrographs, which are basically a really fancy prism to separate the starlight. Instead of being white light, we can set it, separate it into little colors and What's really neat is that every atom can, uh, imprints a barcode onto that starlight. And so we can see from that barcode wobbling backwards and forwards from a reference point, how fast that star is wobbling. And then from that wobble, we can determine the mass of the planet. And so with the transit method, we can work out the size of the planet. From the radial velocity method, we can work out a mass. And if we have a mass and a radius, then you can get a density. And then that's when you can do all the cool stuff that I do in terms of actually trying to determine what these what these worlds are made out of. Fantastic, a beautiful explanation. Thanks for that. Now, right now we have over 10,000 exoplanet candidates, including over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets. Would you like to introduce listeners to the GLASS survey you mentioned earlier? What is it? What parameters are embedded in the data release three data that people are using? And can you tell us how you combine test data, Gaia data, Galar parameters to take an exoplanet from candidate to confirmed exoplanet status? How do you do that? And what's the role of Minerva Australis up on Mount Kent in this process? They're all fantastic. That's a fantastic question. And so 
The Galar survey, as I mentioned, is just an incredible survey looking at almost a million stars. And as I mentioned, galactic archaeology, sorry, I don't think I actually mentioned what galactic archaeology actually is. And so what galactic archaeology is all about is it's trying to work out how did our Milky Way formed and how has it evolved during time. The Milky Way has been around for, we think, roughly about 12 billion years. Yep. And so that's a long time for things to sort of wax and wane and change. So what we can do is we can use those chemical parameters, which so we can look at that starlight, as I mentioned, and ship the white light into its several components. And you can, from that starlight, and this is what's really, really fascinating, Brennan, just from that starlight alone, as I mentioned, you can look at those the barcodes that the atoms are imprinted on that starlight, and that will tell you how much of that particular element is within that star. So that can tell you about the, the chemical makeup of those stars. But also we can tell a lot about the physical parameters. So the, the size and mass of, of these stars and the, the temperature of these stars. So what you can do is you can look at how the intensity of that of that star changes with the color and, and with the wavelength of, of light. And you can work out what the maximum wavelength or what the, the maximum intensity for a certain color is. You can translate that to a temperature. You can work out just from the way how the, those barcodes are embedded. You can look at the, sort of those, the wings because you won't get the, sort of a, a, a single sort of dip or a binary dip in the starlight, you'll sort of get something that sort of looks like a cone. And yeah. you can think about the sort of edges of the cone and how deep the cone is. From looking at those, you can also work out the temperature of, of the star and you can also work out the surface gravity, which you can work out the mass and the radius of these, of these stars. And you can work out just from that starlight, as just as what I said with the radial velocity method, instead of looking at just planets, you can work out well, how fast are these stars traveling around the galaxy and you can work out from that sort of a, a map of how these things are traveling around and i mean that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of what galar can can deliver you and then you can go from that to gaia and so gaia is a, as a spacecraft that is looking at and trying to measure the distance of a billion stars or about 1% of the stars within our Milky Way galaxy, Brendan, which is absolutely crazy. Yep. And so if you can measure how far away the star is, that can really give you better parameters for uh, the temperature and the radius of the star. From that, that can give you the parameters for potential, as you, as you mentioned, whereas over... 10,000 candidates, most of them from the Kepler mission, but actually uh, it's about more or less half and half now between Kepler and TESS. And those candidates are sort of planets that could be, they could be planets or they might not be. And that's when follow-up teams like Minerva Australis can follow them up. And so what is sort of the game plan is that you can create a catalog of stars that you're interested in with Galar and with uh, the test mission. And so that's what I created was a catalog of, I think 47,000 stars Oof. with all the parameters that you would ever need to characterize the planets orbiting around them. 
And then you can use the likes of uh, TESS, the TESS telescope that goes, all right, well, we've found a candidate around one of these stars. And so if you know all those parameters, so you can then work out, well, okay, this might be a, this might actually be a planet or actually hang on, it might actually be a binary system. Still cool, but for us planet hunters, we're more interested in planets than, than stars. And so with that catalog, that can help you with that. And then with Minerva Australis, you can use that radio velocity method to then confirm whether or not it is indeed indeed a, a planet. And so with the Galar catalog, you have those chemical abundances and you can also use those chemical abundances from, from Minerva Australis. I guess if it, they're already available to you, then you don't need to reinvent the wheel twice sort of, sort of thing. And um, yeah, so that's where you can get from candidate to having a confirmed planet utilizing all of that material. Fantastic. There's a, a lot of candidates out there. So you mentioned earlier machine learning, and I saw somewhere that your PhD focus is to use machine learning to help predict which stars might host exoplanets. What does that involve? Another amazing question, Brendan. And so that's going to be a part of my Fulbright scholarship. And so a huge part of my Fulbright is actually using machine learning, and I'll uh, talk about that in a sec, and learning how to predict what types of stars are likely to host rocky worlds, similar to those found within the solar system, and then be able to use the likes of Minerva to then follow up those targets. So everyone probably listening in has used a streaming service, whether it's, you know, Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon or whatever your favorite streaming service is. And you're probably thinking, Brendan, well, I've watched a few movies and how come it knows what I like? How come it knows what I enjoy watching? That's a type of machine learning technique. So you have, as you start with your account, you can watch whatever you want. And so there's probably a choice paralysis there. You're probably scrolling for hours on end thinking, oh my goodness. Yep. What am I going to watch? So you start watching, let's say you enjoy horror movies and let's say you enjoy horror movies that are from Australia you know, might have to see Wolf Creek or something and go all right well enjoy watching Wolf Creek there might be another one and now all of a sudden all of a sudden you've watched a few and it's like well, hang on let's recommend you another horror, horror movie or another Australian movie yep and so in the background there's out of known as machine learning algorithms it's understanding what your choices are and the probability of you choosing some choices over other choices. And that's the sort of crux of what a machine learning algorithm does. And you can use it to do all kinds of weird and wonderful things. And so, yeah, it can just sort of forward predict what you would likely watch. And, and in our case of what I'm trying to do with my Fulbright is that we know that there are some stars that have rocky welds orbiting around them. And so we can look at the chemical signatures of those stars as sort of our Netflix shows are the ones that we enjoy watching. And so when you have 47,000 other stars to play with, you can then pop that into the algorithm and then try and work out from those. I mean, you can think about those 47,000 stars as 47,000 other movies and you try and rate them. Well, uh, this, this fellow here doesn't obviously like comedy, so we'll rank that down the bottom. <laughs> Yep. And we'll rank, you know, Australian horror as the top in, in our case. I don't know why I chose that. That's a weird genre, but who, anyways. 
And so, you know, you try and rank the movies that sort of best match up with, I guess, Australian horror. And then you'll have a sort of ranking of probability of those particular movies. And for our case, a particular set of stars that will go off and follow up and see whether or not that's the case and whether or not they have these types of planets orbiting around them. And from us, it's sort of a, I guess it's a new and novel way of actually discovering planets and sort of confirming planets. So Natalie's done a lot of groundwork and released a paper a couple of years ago and trying to find doing basically the same thing for, but for stars that host hot Jupiters. And so I'm just going to try and do the same with, with stars that host Rocky worlds. Fantastic. And that's a great description. There might be some false positives and it's the way that you sort of train that network up. If things say there might be a 0% probability, that's not to say that they might not host rocky planets. We might find, you know, another five years or so, those sort of stars that have lower probabilities, you look at those, the signature of those uh, chemicals within those stars, maybe in another five or 10 years time, those stars might be the most probable of hosting rocky worlds. Unfortunately, with the work that we do, being in observational science is that we can't really sort of predict or test our hypothesis. I mean, you can, you can to a certain extent, but you just sort of accept the gift that the cosmos is giving you at, at the time. And you try and put pieces of the puzzle together from that. So unfortunately it's not as straightforward as I guess other sciences of which you can make a hypothesis and sort of test it out. I mean, you can, like I said, you can for, for some things, but in terms of what planets we're likely to find out there, it's, it's a treasure trove of a box of licorice all sorts. We're not quite sure what we're going to get. So Yeah. This is so fantastic, Jake. Your quest to find Earth-like planets orbiting distant stars is its just mind-boggling. Okay, we're going to have to pause now and split this interview and we'll get further into the nitty-gritty of planet hunting in part two with another episode with Jake Clark coming up very soon on Astrophys. Listeners on Twitter can follow Jake. He's at Space Jake. It's the at symbol, the word space, and then J-A-Y-K. All one word. Space Jake. Stay tuned. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. And we'll see you in two weeks when Ian returns with his monthly Skywatch for observers and astrophotographers. Radio Wave!